So you may be seated. I am Matt McCann. I've lived a half hour from Melrose basically my whole life north. I am now in pastor track, and so uh, the pastors of this church have trusted me to um, preach the word today. So by God's grace, that's what I'll do. Uh, last week, Matt said that this was tall and going to be hard for the shorter guys, and I'm probably the shortest guy. So if you can't see me, that's, that's not my fault. All right, let's pray. Lord, we need you to be here now. Otherwise, I'll just say words and they won't mean anything. Won't touch anybody's heart, Lord, but if you come here, you can do something great in our hearts. You can make us see you more clearly, and we'll give you the glory for it. We ask you to do that. Amen. Okay, so I had a hard time uh, in prepping for this sermon, seeing how a people, God's people, could possibly be at the place where they were ready to say to God, you're evil, you don't do what's good, and you're not a God of justice. They said, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. How could someone who has a picture of holy God possibly speak such insane blasphemy to him? So I I struggled with that, but I I think I'm here. I think I'm there now, and so I want to try to help you see how they could possibly say that. Picture for a moment that generations and generations of your family worshipped here in this church, Seven Mile Road, Melrose. So picture that your whole cultural identity, your ethnic identity, your historical identity, your spiritual identity is rooted in the fact that God is real, that he's made for himself a people, and that he put them, put you in this church. So this is the only church there is for you. Now, that's not the case in America, right? You can go to a million different places and you can be among Christians and worship God. But assume for the moment that God has only prescribed you to be in this place. So on top of that, remember, everyone you know in your community, your next door neighbors, your relatives, they all worship here too. So your livelihood, your, your identity as a person is rooted in the fact that you're a people group and you worship here, okay? Now put on top of that your leadership. So Pastor Cruz, Pastor Matt Moran, Pastor Justin, Pastor Dan, those guys are elders and leaders in your church, but they've been instituted by God to do that. So like it is now, but put on top of that, you can't remove them. So God has appointed this place and those pastors to be your pastors, and there's nothing you're going to do about that. If they're shady, they're crooked, you can't remove them. They're there to stay. That's up to God. If God wants them out, he takes them out, but you do not. There's nothing you can do. Okay. Not too bad, right? You guys all might, you come here, you like this church, you trust the men of this church, they have integrity, so you're good with that. But what if you came in here and Pastor Cruz was going on his third divorce? Why is he going to go on his third divorce? You know, because you've seen this before, and now yet again, he's flirting with another girl. And you know that it's the same pattern. He's just going to divorce his wife and leave her. What are you going to do? Can't really say anything. How about on top of this? You get a pretty big check this month, right? From work, someone gave you some money, you sold something. And it'd be your heart's delight and joy to give a portion of that to the church. You want to see the church use it for God's glory. And Pastor Matt Moran, he's in charge of the money. What's he do with it? He goes, he puts a down payment on a Benz. He's got a flashy new watch. 
See him cruising down Main Street in the rain. There's a widow on the street. Boom, he hits a puddle, soaks her. Disgrace, right? <laughs> what are you going to do at that point? You entrusted these, you trusted these men to steward your money, and they did not. They're using it for selfish gain. What are you going to do at that point? You going to leave? No way. Your whole identity is rooted in the fact that you're here. You going to say something to them? You really can't. What are you going to do? The temptation, I'll tell you what the people are thinking and what you might be thinking is, God's appointed leaders are being evil, wicked, and God's not doing anything about it. God delights in evil. God's supposed to be a God of justice. This isn't justice. This is not justice being served on these leaders, on the other people in the congregation that are doing shady, underhanded things. God's not doing anything about it. God's evil. God's not just. And so that's where we are in the text today. Can, can you feel that a little bit? The people of Israel are a selected people and made by God. They're in God's prescribed place of worship, and they have God's appointed prescribed leaders over them. And in that, God promised to be a holy God. He promised to be their God. And so because they see that it's not the way that it's supposed to be, they're starting to think God's not who he says he is. The people have major disappointment because the priests aren't supposed to be shady, underhanded, reverend, crooked, all of that. God's people aren't supposed to be practicing sorcery, committing adultery, stealing from workers and widows. This isn't the way it's supposed to go when God is real. And so disillusionment has set heavy on the people. And what should be an immovable rock for them, that God is good, is now crushed. And so their whole value system, their belief system is destroyed and they've lost faith in God to be who he says he is. Let's, let's walk through the text together. I'm in chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? So here's a truth statement to God. Here's a truth statement from God to the people, and then we have the people's response back. And God says, you've wearied me, meaning fatigued, I'm tired, I'm fed up. Right Now, at that point, I don't want you to think that God's an overworked employee, tired of his employees, needs to shut the door, needs a rest, right? He doesn't need an angel to bring him a chair because he needs to sit and stop minding Israel for a while. That's never true of God. What this is saying, this is a way of speaking about God in a way that we can understand it. So the point to get across here is that the people are wrong, the things they're thinking, feeling, and saying are wrong, and God's fed up with it. How many people in here would be, would be cool if you had a definite word from God that he's tired of you? No one, right? This is a, this is a bad situation. And Pastor, Pastor Cruz said it in an earlier sermon. It really stuck with me. He goes, what should happen when a sinner talks back to God over and over again like we've seen in Malachi? Debris, Right? God says something to you, you say something stupid back, boom, destruction, gone. That's not what happens. Let's keep going. You've wearied me with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? We open with how the people got to this place. They're seeing what the priests are doing. They're seeing what other people in the congregation are doing, and God's doing nothing. 
let me try to sink this in a little bit more. Do you think that it's absolutely devastating to a church when they've been trusting a pastor, they've been honoring a pastor, they've put, they believe that before God, this guy's carrying the weight of the glory of Christ to administer to people? Do you think it crushes those people when come to find out that guy has been committing adultery with another man's wife in the church? Crushing, devastating. And I opened with a fake example with guys in this church, right? But that really happens. That still happens now. That's real life. So the temptation in that, I'm sure you can, you can feel that, is to say, God's not who he said he was in his word. So you're tempted to say, God, you're a liar. You don't care about justice, and you don't do what's good. But when you do that, when people do that, they demonstrate that they prove they don't believe what God has said in his word. They prove that they don't believe that God is good, that he's just, that he does what's right. They've allowed, or you've allowed when you get to that place, to the situations and circumstances that you're in, they've removed your faith in God is good. And that's where the people are. They've said two wicked things that I want to press on. They said, one, God takes pleasure in the wicked. He favors the wicked. That he is for what is disgusting. Second thing they've said is this. Where's the God of justice? Meaning, God is either not around, doesn't care, or he's unjust. He doesn't care. So they've attributed to God what may never be attributed to God. There's zero faith in their hearts. There's no trust that God is going to be holy and do what's right in this point in the text. Um, Beginning of the service, we opened with Psalm 73, and that's a psalm penned by David. So I want to ask you, do you think that the people are struggling at this point with evil and injustice the same way that David struggled with it? I'll read briefly from that. David says, truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So David, too, is struggling with the fact that there's evil, that human beings are being evil and still succeeding in what they do. He goes on to say, the wicked are always at ease. They increase in riches. But look look at the difference here. How does David begin and how does David end? He begins with, truly, God is good to Israel. God is good to Israel. He ends with, but for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. So he struggles with the fact that there's wickedness, but he does that with the heart of faith. So that's a way of struggling with faith. The people did not do this. They did not ask or question this with humility in their hearts. They hurl these faithless complaints at God, attacking him, trying to put him in the docket. Their motivation is not pure. So when I read this, I, I can see some of the thinking that might be going on. They're saying, God, the priests and your people in the church don't worship you according to the law, and you don't do anything about it, so I'm going to jump in. I'm going to do the same thing. Right? There's probably some there's sinful motivations going on in the heart here. And so they're asking for a God to punish God to punish sin, but they're not recognizing first that they got sin in their own life. Right? They're asking for the God of justice, and now he's about to show up, and they never thought, well, what's that mean for me? 
being sinful. There's, this is definitely a judgment text to be sure. I got a judgment text. Um, and so when I, I think of judgment, I want to first give you what I, what I think of and what I think God's alternative response to the people could have been before we get God's response. What if God said this right after this to the people? Have you loved me with all your heart, all your soul, all your might? Or have you set your affections on other things? You've not loved me. You've set your affections on other things. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The end, right? The priests are breaking the law. The people are breaking the law. You're breaking the law. Done. Complete destruction. You fail. That's not God's answer. Let's get his answer. Verse chapter, verse 3, chap, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. I'll read that. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Here's our main verse. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in days of old and former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So God's answer to the people is future judgment. It says that for those who do not fear me, I will be a swift witness, meaning I'm coming and those people who do not love me, done. So God is going to show up but that's not the focus of this text. So the wrath side of judgment does come later, and that will be preached on. But the focus of our text is that God's going to cleanse a people. And we get that in, then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. So we see this immense hope here in God's response to a sinful people. That's gospel right there that God is giving for the repentant sinner. God's going to show up and cleanse. So if you've been through this longing for God to deal with the sin in the people and, and around them, this is it. This is God's response, but it's a response of grace. God's promise is, is to refine the sinner so that they can bring offerings and righteousness to God. Malachi uses a couple of images that we'll go through to describe this purifying judgment. He says that the refining is like fuller's soap. Anyone know what fuller's soap is? I did not. Um, all it is is a bar of soap, right? That's all it is. But in order to get the illustration, you have to go back before the common grace of washing machines, laundry detergents, which would be hard. But if you went back and you had to use a bar of fuller soap to clean a piece of clothing, you'd have to pummel that thing, right? There's dirt, there's grime inside the clothing. You've got to wash that out. And so it's a painful image here. The process is painful. And what he's saying is the person is the clothing, and the refiner is the soap. The other image he uses is that of a, a smith who works in, in processing metals and like gold and silver. And what that would be is 
they'd get a big chunk of metal, of rock, and they knew there was gold in it, but it wasn't all gold. There was stuff in that chunk, that big heavy piece, that wouldn't be valuable. So what they would do is he would throw it in a vat that had intense, severe heat on it. It bubbled down, and what would float to the top is all the stuff that's not valuable. So then that smith could just take the, the stuff off the top that's not valuable, discard, and what he's left with is pure gold. The image here is that the metal, the gold, is the person, and that person has a whole bunch of stuff in them that is just not right before God. And so what God's going to do is drop it in the vat, and that heat is going to be his refiner. And so the beautiful thing about this is after that painful process, you can imagine, if you were the clothing, and you're getting beaten on with the soap, or you're the, you're the big chunk of metal that's going into the heat, that's painful, but the beauty is it says they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord after that that the offering will be pleasing to the Lord. So God will make it so that the sin of the people is gone and they can once again be pleasing. Earlier I said that an alternative response from God could have been total annihilation. And he would have been just to do so. We know that he's done that, right? Completely flooded the earth, killed everyone, saved a select few. But that's not what happens here in Malachi. He gives a response of purifying grace for those who love him, for those who he loves. So that's our text. God makes a truth statement to the people. The people respond back with blasphemy. And God answers with a future promise of judgment that means grace for these people. Can't end with that, right? Can't just walk away right now. Um, Everything I've said would be true in an Orthodox Jewish church up to this point. Jewish synagogue. So there's a reality in this text, though, that I want to get at that we can't miss. It's life for us. And that is this, God already fulfilled this promise. God's response to the people in Malachi is to show up in judgment, and that already happened. Let's walk through that real quick. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That messenger is John the Baptist. Jesus quotes this exact verse, five pages to the right in your Bible, in Matthew eleven ten. Jesus said that John the Baptist was more than a prophet. He was the guy who was going to prepare the way for God's son. So if you've been a Christian a long time, maybe, maybe you have, but if you have, you probably know that John the Baptist was for the purpose of preparing the way for the coming of Christ. But we need to remember that John the Baptist did not come out the womb, train up, and then say, I'm going to be the forerunner to Jesus' ministry. No. John the Baptist is the opening act to Jesus' ministry because God said in Malachi 3.1 that he was going to send a messenger. John the Baptist happened because God said he was going to happen. There's another reason why Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1. It's because the rest of it is speaking about him. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. So this Lord, this messenger, this purifier is Jesus Christ. The text begs for God to deal justly with evil and injustice. And his ultimate response is to send Jesus. So those then who hear this in Malachi's day have their purification, have their cleansing by looking forward, trusting in God's eventual provision to eradicate this and cleanse his people. 
And that provision is Jesus. So us today who have faith are now cleansed and made acceptable before God, offering a pleasing sacrifice and offering to God because we look back at what Jesus has already done and we look forward in faith to his final coming. So the reason that the, tr- the text can truthfully say, then, make that caps locks in your Bible, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord is because Jesus makes our faith offering ple- pleasing to God. We have faith and offer our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's made possible because of Jesus' perfect work. Jesus purifies the people for himself. And this is how he does it. God grants the sinner faith and repentance. And his purifier is Jesus. Jesus is the fuller soul. God grants faith and repentance in the sinner. And his purifier is Jesus. Jesus is that intense fire for the refiner. Everyone deserves condemnation side of judgment. Condemnation, wrath side of judgment. Can't forget that. But God, in order to fulfill his promise, to cleanse a people and make them his, put that judgment on Christ so that our sins, people's sins, could be exchanged for his righteousness. That's how God does it. Uh, Application of this text is is pretty clear, or it should be if I've done this long. We're either going to be a people who doubt God because there is still sin and evil among his people, we're going to trust God and love him because Jesus is God's final answer to sin. The Bible does answer for us why God has not completely ended this whole thing right now. There is still sin in the church, right? And that those situations where a pastor steals money, cheats on his wife, does a whole bunch of other things, gets caught up in these disgusting news-breaking stories. Why isn't God just gone, whole church destroyed. Why hasn't God done that? You might even ask for it, right? The people asked for it. God, why haven't you done something about this? And the Bible answers that question for us. Peter's writing to to a group, and they're asking, why isn't Jesus back yet? What is going on? Why isn't this ended? We want this to be ended. And Peter says in 2 Peter 3.8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience in tolerating evil and injustice, not just in the world at large in general, but in the people, in us as well, has meant repentance. So God doesn't end the world in Malachi. God didn't end the world right after Jesus. God didn't end the world 100 years ago or even last week. Why? Because it's meant faith and repentance and purifying and cleansing in his people. The charge of this text is for us to be a people that loves God's plan in Jesus. So I'll end with this. What if instead of saying, God, you're evil, you're unjust, and you don't do what's right, what if instead of doing that, they understood that God was good, that he had a plan of refining judgment, 
that would cause repentance in his people? What if they understood that and they prayed this instead? God, you're good. You do good and you are holy. We beg that you would make cleansing provision for your pastors, your people, and your church. God, our pastors and people are wicked. Save them. Grant them repentance and cleansing that leads to forgiveness in life. We too are sinful and wicked. Cause us to be cleansed and we will worship you rightly. Lord, for those who do not repent and continue to fight against you, for those who hate you and do not fear you, remove them from your people for the glory of your name. We trust that you will do this. Amen.